For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. A Hungarian fish scientist produced a brand new species while encouraging asexual reproduction in sturgeon. The new species is a hybrid between a Russian sturgeon and another ancient fish, the American paddlefish or spoonbill. This hybrid with the ancient origin is of course named the sturtlefish. I'm not sure what's more disturbing, the act of creating new species when so many sturgeon and paddlefish species are critically endangered, or the mental image brought about by a group of scientists performing the act of, quote, encouraging asexual reproduction. I'm not sure about you, but my mind doesn't wander to anything scientific when I hear the sentence, we were encouraging asexual reproduction. Define encouraging. Russian sturgeons, specifically those from the Caspian Sea, have been on the decline for decades. The fish are highly prized for their roe, which is lightly brined with salt at the peak of egg development, turning eggs into caviar. If you want a couple of fun caviar facts, one way that uh, folks harvesting caviar find that the eggs are at peak development is by using ultrasound. There are many ways to extrude the roe, one of which is gently massaging the fish. And don't go just throwing the word caviar around. If you are not talking eggs from fish belonging to the family Acepenseridae, which is sturgeon, or Polyodontidae, which is paddlefish, you just aren't talking caviar. You may be talking about tasty, slightly salted eggs that came from fish, but they are caviar substitutes, not caviar. It's a fake. Now, on a personal note, I've separated salmon roe and smallmouth bass roe and trout roe from their skeins, rinsed them, soaked them in a salt solution, 
and found them all to be very good eating, but probably much more visually appealing than tasty. The United States banned the import of beluga caviar from the Caspian Sea in 2005. Overfishing as well as habitat destruction in the way of pollution had taken its toll on the population. Currently, beluga sturgeon is listed by the IUCN as critically endangered. Despite this, starting in about 2007, there has been some legal trade of Black Sea and Caspian Sea caviar. If you are a caviar eater, don't despair. Just try to do your research and see if you can source yours from sustainable stocks. Here in the U.S., paddlefish or spoonbill or polyodon spathula, that's spathula, not spatula. But if you're familiar with the paddlefish, if it were polyodon spatula, that would be very fitting. As we have covered before, this prehistoric spoonbill has a bill or paddle or rostrum that can be about a third of its entire body length sticking up where its nose would be. They date back about 125 million years and are found throughout the Mississippi and Missouri river drainages. Some folks even called these freshwater sharks because of their shark-like tail and the fact that their body is cartilaginous. No bones about it. Although the paddlefish has been greatly reduced in number, it can still be found in 22 states and fished for in some capacity in 13 of those 22 states. In fact, in the state of Oklahoma, a new paddlefish angling world record was just caught. You can get all the details at TheMeatEater.com or own Spencer Newhart wrote on that one. And a quick recap for you. Suffice it to say that this fish was bigger than any previously caught by a whopping 2 pounds 11 ounces. Means of take, the angling in this case, and in most cases when you're talking paddlefish, is snagging. That's using a big uh, treble hook, a little bit of weight, and you're ripping that treble hook through the water hoping to snag a paddlefish. Paddlefish eat by straining zooplankton and phytoplankton out of the water, meaning that they have your typical like straining means of eating, right? They open a huge wide mouth, they filter feed all these little tiny animals and miniature crustaceans through their gills, through their gill rakers, and trap that food as they move. And nobody's making any sort of like conventional tackle that uh, has a big enough hook to land a possibly 140 pound fish while representing a miniature crustacean. Now, here's some unsubstantiated evidence from a fellow I trust who has caught on a fly rod two paddlefish. And while he was in the boat, his friend next to him caught two paddlefish. This was below a dam on an unnamed river that I can't tell you about, but they did it consistently enough to where they were catching paddlefish that were eating their flies. Now, again, if you ever take a look at the picture of one of these things, they have like a giant bucket trap mouth, right? They're going to filter a huge volume of water. So it is very conceivable that as they're down there, especially in a river, a moving water situation, that they're lined up and those big bucket mouths could quite possibly just be harder to avoid than not. Or they just eat more than we think of. Imagine that. Anyway, you shouldn't be catching any sturtle fish in the future as they are under lock and key in an aquaculture facility. I think the likely benefit to this particular man-made hybrid species is a less expensive caviar. Hybrid caviar, which does exist, is typically less expensive than straight sturgeon roe. In this case, you have a sturgeon-like fish 
that is eating zooplankton like a paddlefish, which costs way, way less than your typical sturgeon diet would, which is good news for you egg eaters. No caviar for me, thanks. Never did like it much. This week, the Great American Outdoors Act, the Crime Desk, a new desk that I'm kind of tinkering with calling the That Sucks Desk, as we'll be talking parasites. Get it? And so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. My week and this podcast is sponsored by Steel Power Equipment. There happens to be some new construction going on next to me, and I heard the unmistakable rumble of a dependable steel chainsaw right out my window. So I went to take a look. I found a fella in my backyard using his steel chainsaw to cut through a stack of BCIs, which are floor joists. You use these joists to span gaps between load-bearing walls. Then you lay your uh, OSB or sheeting of some sort on top of that. And then eventually you uh, clean that sheeting off of all the uh, sawdust and old nails and screws and chew spit. And then you put your actual nice flooring on top of that. That's how you frame a house, kids. Here's something I didn't know until just now in my pursuit of providing accurate information to all of you. The floor joist is an eye joist constructed by Boise Cascade, which is where the B, the C, and the I come from. So it's Boise Cascade eye joist. Whereas we, way back when, when I was swinging a hammer on the job site, always called them BCIs, which I suppose is kind of correct, but it would have been way more accurate to call them eye joists. This is not a big deal, but this is just one of those moments in life when you find out that you were going along with something for a long time, and it, you know, was kind of a lie. Kind of like calling uh, cow's deer, coos deer. Arizona Game and Fish Department Wildlife Science Coordinator Jim Heffelfinger lays that argument out in such a way where if you are a coos person, well, you're wrong. We haven't done any listener emails lately, so we'll catch up on the mail pile before we move on. Uh, First, I want to talk about SPBs, or soft plastic baits. You may not fish with these, but you probably know what they are. Molded plastic baits that resemble anything from frogs to crayfish to worms and salamanders. Basically anything a fish could think of eating. A fellow named Joe writes in, says it seems odd that we're worried about plastic in the ocean and other bodies of water, but here we are throwing plastic baits into lakes all the time. Are these baits a special plastic that degrades faster? Well, I dug into this one a bit. Uh, It turns out the state of Maine at one point had proposed legislation that would make the use of SPBs, soft plastic baits, illegal. If you go to keepamericafishing.org, you can look at a pretty good overview of the history of the uh, litigious nature of this uh, situation. Uh, Folks like Joe asking the question, and then somebody thinking that, yeah, that does make sense, and then they propose a rule change or regulation change, and then it shows how folks kind of smack that down. I reached out to Berkeley Powerbait through phone and email. Couldn't get anybody to pick up the phone all week. And uh, whoever is responding to email uh, isn't great at reading the actual question. So I don't have any specifics as to the rate at which a paddle tail or twister tail or gulp minnow biodegrades. I will tell you that I caught some really nice bluegill and a few crappie on a gulp minnow just last week while I was in Minnesota filming for the new DOS boat season. So yes, I have been using a twister tail grub from time to time. Anyway. 
throwing plastic in rivers is not good. The American Sport Fishing Association seems to recognize this, but at the same time, they show that there are no comprehensive studies showing that these soft plastic baits are killing fish or even really hurting them. Fish either regurgitate a bait or pass it all the way through the system. As in, you know, they poop it out. The ASA has put their efforts into angler outreach and education, telling folks to throw your SPBs away or recycle them instead of throwing them overboard. To add on to this, in my experience, you have a pretty darned good idea as to when a tail or a whole bait is going to come off your hook. So instead of casting again and giving a fish that opportunity to swallow that plastic grub, uh, you just swap it out for a fresh one instead of allowing it to go into the river system, or lake, or ocean, or what have you. This is not a stretch. Easy like Sunday morning. This is not a big ask for folks buying these baits, as they're kind of spendy already. Don't act like you're saving cash by uh, fishing every one until it falls off the hook. Remember, my angling friends, if you throw these baits, these plastic baits into the river, or even on the bank and some shorebird or fish species of concern eventually washes up with one jammed in their gullet, the difference between a fisher person's piece of plastic and just a random litter bug's piece of plastic is the fisher person's piece of plastic, everyone can tell who that belonged to. It belonged to a fisher person who was, you know, trying to dupe a fish. Unmistakable. We know where it came from. And to the non-angling public, It doesn't matter if you don't even use that stuff. If you like the leech and lead method or fluorocarbon and fly, these folks who don't fish just think a fisher person is a fisher person is a fisher person. So pack it in, pack it out. Not a big ask. And, uh, you know, for you pro-litter folks who love this microplastic talk, who will undoubtedly write in about how you don't litter, you'd never even consider it, but... Throwing plastic in the river or lake or the ocean isn't a big deal, and the fact that folks consume a credit card's worth of plastic per month isn't anything worth talking about. Just pick up your trash. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it, and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. 
pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Moving on. The eastern Arctic killer whales were historically found throughout the eastern shore of Canada down to about Boston. Now, however, killer whale sightings. The killer whale is a toothed whale that can grow to 22 feet in length and about 12,000 pounds. They're extremely rare. A few quick searches on this topic bring up a really interesting fishing report of one fisherman who's been fishing out of Boston for 35 years who has seen two in all of his time fishing some hoaxes, some mistaken identities, and a few bum links. So not all that much. There was a cool story about how uh, Mainers back in the 1800s used to complain that there were so many killer whales that the killer whales would interfere with their attempts to drive blackfish onto the shore for harvest, which, you know, says that there were a lot of killer whales in Maine in the 1800s. Well, a listener named Kyle Got a video from some childhood friends who are lobster fishermen in Maine who filmed one this past Monday off of the coast of Jonesport. I could say more about this, but Kyle's buddy in the video says it best uh, when looking at the unmistakably tall dorsal fin of a killer whale. He just states, a friggin' killer whale, which of course convinced me that this was at least Maine. Other than that, I cannot attest to the location. I'll tell you, we were filming up in Southeast Alaska one year for the Meat Eater TV show. I was hunting blacktail with Vortex's Mark Boardman, and uh, we were going to this spot that required getting out real early in boats, and none of Steve's boats have any legal running lights, so you got to wait for the sunlight to come up, and you just kind of creep out of the bay as the sun comes up. On top of that, once you got out of the cove and through the pass, the strait that led to this island that we were hunting was full of logs, so you had to kind of, you know take your time even though you didn't want to. Well, one morning, it is crystal clear. We're running out to our spot. The seas are dead calm, and I start seeing spouts. The whales clearing their blowholes from a long way off, and that mist is just catching the early light. Eventually, I see that we could get too close as we're both going through the pass at the same time, and being as I had a camera crew with me, I didn't want to break any laws that I knew or didn't know about, uh, you know, the Marine Mammals Act. So I cut the engine and glided to a stop a long way from the pot of whales. Soon, the other boat, captained by Giannis Patelis, caught up to us and stopped. The next thing that happened was truly amazing. I'll never forget it. This pod of killer whales, instead of just running through the pass, turned and came right to us, kind of to investigate just as we drifted there on the open ocean. They slid right in between our two 16-foot aluminum skiffs. The distance between the two boats, I remember thinking was like an underhand toss of a beer from one boat to the next. You can judge me on that later, but that's what came to me at that time. The other thing that struck me was the calf in that group, the smallest member of the killer whale group, 
definitely weighed more than either one of our boats, engine, gear, people. And it would have been so, so simple for any one of those whales to just, you know, rub shoulders with the boat and just swamp us. I'll never forget that. I could have walked over to Giannis's boat on the back of killer whales. And my response at the end of this awe-inspiring encounter was not exactly the same, but kind of similar to Kyle's buddy in Maine. You kind of just get left going, man, friggin' killer whales. So thanks for sending that in, Kyle. Last but not least, if you've been paying attention at all, you've noticed all sorts of conservation groups celebrating. The House of Representatives have passed the Great American Outdoors Act by a margin of 310 to 107. The Senate passed the Great American Outdoors Act by a margin of 73 to 25. Now that these votes are behind us, all we need is President Trump to sign this package into law. The reason that people are so excited is conservation work is tedious. It takes a lot of work. How much? Well, just take one part of the Great American Outdoors Act, which is full and permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, a program that takes an excise tax on offshore oil and gas drilling. The American taxpayers aren't on the hook for this one. It was established in 1965. That's 55 years ago. And for 55 years, folks in the conservation world have been advocating their butts off for full and permanent funding, which has never happened. There is cause to celebrate, just briefly, because there's plenty of work left to do. I do want to take a moment here. There's some strong opponents, lifelong opponents, to funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And, and uh, one of them's Rob Bishop. Another one is, uh, oddly enough, a Utah senator named Mike Lee, who that guy doesn't like anything. And they like to spin this funding of LWCF in this statement that says, mandatory spending on acquiring new land for the federal government. It's patently false. What they're saying is completely wrong. There are some occasions where LWCF acquires brand new land, but those same funds are available for such a giant range of access programs that just the bulk purchase of land is just a part of it. And to narrow it down to just saying, this is what it does, it just makes the government buy land, would be as accurate as saying, all LWCF does is make the government partially fund baseball diamonds, which is something that it does. Or all it does, all LWCF does, is make the government partially fund bike paths to the tune of $900 million a year. It's kind of true, but it's not the whole picture. These guys know what it does. They just don't like it. They also live in a state that has over 70% public land that that state benefits greatly from. The recreational economy in the state of Utah is absolutely bonkers. All you got to do the next time you have to connect through the Salt Lake City Airport is look at how they advertise the state of Utah. They don't advertise private land. They advertise all the national parks, all the national monuments. They advertise the outdoor recreational activities on public land. These guys are having their cake and eating it too. We're going to move off that rant, and I'm just going to tell you that there's more work to do, okay? Thank you very, very much 
for picking up the phones, writing emails, and hounding your state senators, your congressional representatives on behalf of the Great American Outdoors Act. Thank you, thank you. Now, pick up the phone and thank those people. Make sure that they hear you say, hey, thank you very much. This stuff is very important to me. You did a great job on either co-signing or voting for the Great American Outdoors Act. Then, when that's sunk in, say, I got one more thing for you. I need you to co-sponsor or vote for the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Let them know that what is so cool about the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is that every state has submitted a list of wildlife and plant species that have the greatest conservation needs. We just got a package through the House and Senate that provides for a lot of human stuff. Deferred maintenance in parks on U.S. Forest Service land, on BLM land, U.S. Fish and Wildlife land, as well as funding through the Land and Water Conservation Fund for access projects like parks and baseball diamonds and bike paths and easements and boat ramps. Now, it's time to give our wildlife a funding boost as well. You supported the Great American Outdoors Act. Again, thank you so much. You know how easy it is to write an email or call the switchboard at 202-224-3121. So just do it again. This is your call to action. Moving on to the uh, things that suck desk. Parasites, that is. The Chinese liver fluke is a parasitic flatworm that humans can get real familiar with by eating raw or undercooked fish. How familiar? Well, like the name suggests, liver flukes end up inhabiting your liver, bile duct, and gallbladder. In one recent case in China, a Mr. Z had liver flukes inhabit his liver for over four months. Over the course of four months, his resident flatworms had essentially emptied out the left lobe of his liver leaving only a pus-filled sack and thousands of eggs in the form of cysts behind in the cavity. If you have ever heard my buddy Stephen Ranella talk about this type of thing, it does sound very similar to trichinosis. Only, the cycle in this case was likely free-swimming flatworm cysts in freshwater, which attached themselves to a snail, which eventually hatched more free-swimming cysts that attached and fed upon a freshwater fish, That freshwater fish was then eventually caught and consumed by Mr. Z. The cysts then free swam through his gut to his bile ducts and liver, where they ate and laid eggs, waiting to be eaten again. I'm fine. I just uh, threw up in my mouth a little bit. So I guess what I'm saying is, sometimes that sign that says fresh fish shouldn't be as tempting as the one that says briefly flash frozen fresh fish. That's the risk of freshwater ceviche, folks. According to the CDC, Center for Disease Control, left unchecked and given that you survive infections, flatworm cysts can last 25 to 30 years in the human gut. In Airbnb terms, you'd be a super host. Effective medication is available. The case of Mr. Z was greatly exacerbated due to the fact that he waited four months before seeking medical attention and again, Freezing or cooking fish will kill the parasite, which literally means you can have it both ways, brother. Moving on to the ever-popular law enforcement desk. West Virginia Natural Resources officers cited a man for illegally fishing on private property, which he illegally accessed on a private road. The property was thoroughly posted. In fact, the individual had forgotten his kayak paddle, 
and used one of the private property signs to paddle his kayak around while fishing that morning. He was cited and stated that the fishing had been productive. Jumping over to Florida, a lieutenant with the Walton County Jail has resigned after she and her husband were recently caught outside of Argyle, Florida, by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission shooting at a robotic deer decoy at night out of a vehicle. Oops! The husband told FWCC that he knew something was wrong, as he rarely ever misses. Now, just so you know, typically when you miss, or if you are in the position of, let's say, teaching someone how to shoot, you look for inconsistencies. You kind of like figure out what the excuses are, right? So you can hone in on what the actual problem is. You know, were you shooting the same rifle? Same cartridge? What were the shooting conditions? Once all that's established, then you can figure out what the situation is. So when this fella says he rarely ever misses, is he really saying that typically when he's driving at night on a road, he rarely ever misses from a vehicle on a highway three times? As the couple turned around to investigate the robotic decoy, an FWCC officer apparently heard the sure shot husband say, quote, that deer sure was pretty. Thanks for sending that one in, Mason, and good luck this season. Jumping over to the I told you so desk. Remember when you folks made statements like, if everyone did that, then there would be nothing left. For instance, if everyone threw a rock in the Grand Canyon, or if everyone picked an apple, or if uh, everyone picked a flower out of the field, well, you know, they were right. Not entirely, but they did and do have a point. People cannot help themselves. Cuba boasts, among many boasts it's capable of boasting, the greatest diversity of snails in the world. Snails of all shapes and sizes, ranging from minuscule to large to brown to opaque, and of course, to a critically endangered Cuban snail, the painted snail. The painted snail has a beautiful shell, is multicolored and glossy and highly sought after by collectors, to the point where all six species of painted snail are listed as critically endangered. There are factors such as habitat and global warming, but one hard-to-ignore factor is Cuban officials keep finding snail shells in people's pockets. On top of that, they have found an intricate network of snail shell exporters. According to National Geographic, between 2012 and 2016, Cuban customs seized more than 23,000 shells in 15 seizures, all headed for the U.S. Now, 23,000 shells sounds like a lot. But really, it's just a fraction of what is going on. The writer of this Nat Geo piece, Bruno Diamici, personally inspected a couple's collection in Cuba. The couple had intended these shells for sale. In their home, they had at least 30,000 snail shells. If you look at what gets the most attention on the endangered species list, it is almost always something large or large with teeth. The grizzly bear stayed on the endangered species list for a long time, for example. I find it important to include the pocket-sized critters, too, and to note that these snails likely developed their multicolored and vibrant scheme to deter predation until people came along and thought, boy, that's pretty. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, let me know what I'm getting right, what I'm getting wrong, and what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to AskCal, that's A-S-K-C-A-L, at TheMeatEater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. 
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.